Chapter 15 of On Secret Service, Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents, by William Nelson Taft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 The Man with Three Wives One of the first things to strike the eye of the visitor who enters the library den of William J. Quinn known to his friends and former associates in the United States Secret Service as Bill, is a frame which stands upon the mantel and contains the photographs of three exceptionally pretty women. Anyone who doesn't know that this room is consecrated to relics of the exploits of the various governmental detective services might be pardoned for supposing that the three pictures in the single frame are photographs of relatives. Only closer inspection will reveal the fact that beneath them appears a transcript from several pages of a certain book of records, the original of which is kept at the New York City Hall. These pages state that... But suppose we let Quinn tell the story, just as he told it one cold November night, while the wind was whistling outside and the cheery warmth of the fire made things extremely snug within. Secret service men, said Quinn, divide all of their cases into two classes, those which call for quick action and plenty of it, and those which demand a great deal of thought and only an hour or so of actual physical work. Your typical operative, Allison, who was responsible for solving the poison pen puzzle, for example, or Hal Preston, who penetrated the mystery surrounding the murder of Montgomery Marshall, is essentially a man of action. He likes to tackle a job and get it over with. It doesn't make any difference if he has to round up a half-dozen counterfeiters at the point of a single revolver, as Tommy Callahan once did, or break up a gang of train robbers who have sworn never to be taken alive. As long as he has plenty of thrills and excitement, as long as he is able to get some joy out of life, he doesn't give a hang for the risk. That's his business, and he loves it. But it's the long-drawn-out cases which he has to ponder over and consider from a score of angles that, in the vernacular of vaudeville, capture his angora. Give him an assignment where he can trail his man for a day or two, get the lay of the land, and then drop on the bunch like a ton of brick, and everything's fine. Give him one of the other kind, and, well, he's just about as happy as Guy Randall was when they turned him loose with instructions to get something on Carl Cheney. Remember during the early days of the war, when the papers were full of stories from New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Milwaukee, and points west? about gatherings of pro-German sympathizers who were determined to aid the fatherland? Theoretically, we were neutral at that time, and these people had all the scope they wanted. They did not confine themselves to talk, however, but laid several plans which were destined to annoy the government and to keep several hundred operatives busy defeating them, for they were aimed directly at our policy of neutrality. As a campaign fund to assure the success of these operations, the German sympathizers raised not less than $16 million, 
a sum which naturally excited the cupidity not only of certain individuals within their own ranks, but also of persons on the outside, men who were accustomed to live by their wits, and who saw in this gigantic collection the opportunity of a lifetime. When you consider that you can hire a New York gangster to commit murder for a couple of hundred dollars, and the union scale has been known to be even lower, it's no wonder that the mere mention of sixteen million dollars caused many a crook of international reputation to figure how he could divert at least a part of this to his own bank account. That's the way, as it afterward turned out, that Carl Cheney looked at it. Cheney had rubbed elbows with the police on several occasions prior to 1914. It was suspected that he had been mixed up in a number of exceptionally clever smuggling schemes, and that he had had a finger in one or two operations which came perilously close to blackmail. But no one had ever been able to get anything on him. He was the original Finnegan, in again, gone again. By the time the plan came to a successful conclusion, all that remained of Count Carl's connection with it was a vague and distinctly nebulous shadow. And you simply can't arrest shadows, no matter how hard you try. The New York police were the first to tip Washington off to the fact that Cheney, who had dropped his aristocratic alias for the time being, was back in this country and had been seen in the company of a number of prominent members of a certain German-American club which wasn't in any too good repute with the Department of Justice by reason of the efforts of some of its members to destroy the neutral stand of the nation. "'Have no indications of what Cheney is doing,' the report admitted. "'But it will be well to trail him.' Apparently he has some connection, officially or unofficially, with Berlin. Advise what action you wish to take. Whereupon the chief wired back, Operative assigned to Cheney case leaves tonight. Meanwhile, please watch. It wasn't until after the wire had been sent that Guy Randall was summoned to the inner sanctum of the Secret Service and informed that he had been elected to trail the elusive suspect and find out what he was up to. "'So far as our records show,' stated the chief, "'no one has ever been able to catch this Cheney person in the act of departing from the straight and narrow path. However, that's a matter of the past.' What we've got to find out is what he is planning now, why he is in New York, and why he has attached himself to the pro-German element, which has all kinds of wild schemes up its sleeve. "'And I'm the one who's going to handle it?' inquired Guy, with a grimace. "'Precisely,' grinned the chief. "'Oh, I know it doesn't look like much of a job.' and I grant you that the thrill element will probably be lacking, but you can't draw a snap every time. All that's asked is that you get something on Cheney, something which will withstand the assaults of the lawyers he will undoubtedly hire the minute we lay hands on him. Therefore, you've got to be mighty careful to have the right dope. If you're satisfied that he's doing nothing out of the way, don't hesitate to say so. But I don't expect that your report will clear him, 
for, from what we already know of the gentleman, he's more likely to be implicated in some plan aimed directly at a violation of neutrality, and it's essential that we find out what that is before we take any radical step. "'What do you know about Cheney?' was Randall's next question, followed by an explanation from the chief that the Count had been suspected in a number of cases and had barely been able to escape in time. "'But,' added the head of the Secret Service, "'he did escape. And that's what we have to prevent this time. He's a fast worker and a clever one, which means that you've got to keep continually after him. Call in all the help you need, but if you take my advice, you'll handle the case alone. You're apt to get a lot further that way.' Agreeing that this was the best method to pursue, Randall caught the midnight train for New York and went at once to police headquarters, where he requested a full description of Cheney's previous activities. "'You're asking for something what ain't,' he was informed, ungrammatically, but truthfully. "'We've never been able to get a thing on the count, though we're dead certain that he had a finger in several crooked plays.' The Latimer letters were never directly traced to him, but it's a cinch that he had something to do with their preparation, just as he had with the blackmailing of Old Man Branchfield and the smuggling of Van Heusen emeralds. You remember that case, don't you? The one where the stones were concealed in a life preserver, and they staged a man-overboard stunt, just as the ship came into the harbor? Nobody ever got the stones or proved that they were actually smuggled. But the Count happened to be on the ship at the time, just as he happened to be in Paris when they were sold. We didn't even dare arrest him, which accounts for the fact that his photograph doesn't ornament the rogue's gallery. Well, what's the idea of trailing him, then? Just to find out what he is doing. What do you call those birds that fly around at sea just before a gale breaks? Stormy petrels? That's the count. He's a stormy petrel of crookedness. Something goes wrong every time he hits a town. Or, rather, just after he leaves, for he's too clever to stick around too long. The question now is, what's this particular storm, and when is it going to break? "'Fine job to turn me loose on,' grumbled Randall. "'It is that,' laughed the captain who was dispensing information. "'But you can never tell what you'll run into, me boy. "'Why, I remember once—' "'Randall, however, was out of the office "'before the official had gotten well started in his reminiscences. He figured that he had already had too much of a grouch to listen patiently to some long-winded story dug out of the musty archives of police history, and he made his way at once to the hotel where Carl Cheney was registered, flaunting his own name in front of the police, whom he must have known were watching him. Neither the house detective nor the plainclothesman who had been delegated to trail Cheney could add anything of interest to the little that Randall already knew. The Count, they said, had conducted himself in a most circumspect manner, 
and had not been actually seen in conference with any of the Germans with whom he was supposed to be in league. "'He's too slick for that,' added the man from the central office. "'Whenever he's got a conference on, he goes up to the club, and you can't get in there with anything less than a battering ram and raiding squad. There's no chance to plant a dictaphone, and how else are you going to get the information?' "'What does he do at other times?' countered Guy, preferring not to reply to the former question until he had gotten a better line on the case. "'Behaves himself,' was the laconic answer. "'Takes a drive in the park in the afternoon, dines here or at one of the other hotels, goes to the theater, and usually finishes up with a little supper somewhere among the white lights.' Any women in sight? Yes, two. A blonde from the girl show that's playing at the Knickerbocker and a redhead. Don't know who she is, but they're both good lookers. No scandal, though. Everything appears to be on the level, even the women. Well, mused the government operative after a moment's silence, I guess I better get on the job. Probably means a long stretch of dull work, but the sooner I get at it, the sooner I'll get over it. Where is Cheney now? Up in his room. Hasn't come down to breakfast yet. Yes, there he is now, just getting out of the elevator, headed toward the dining room. And the plainclothesman indicated the tall figure of a man about forty, a man dressed in the height of fashion with spats, a cane, and a morning coat of the most correct cut. "'Want me for anything?' "'Not a thing,' said Randall, absently. "'I'll pick him up now. You might tell the chief to watch out for a hurry call from me, though I'm afraid he won't get it.' As events proved, Randall was dead right. The central office heard nothing from him for several months, and even Washington received only stereotyped reports indicative of what Cheney was doing, which wasn't much. Shortly after the first of the year, Guy sent a wire to the chief, asking to be relieved for a day or two in order that he might be free to come to Washington. Sensing the fact that the operative had some plan which he wished to discuss personally, the chief put another man on Cheney's trail and instructed Randall to report at the Treasury Department on the following morning. "'What's the matter?' inquired the man at the head of the service, as Guy, a little thinner than formerly, and showing by the wrinkles about his eyes the strain under which he was working, strolled into the office. "'Nothing's the matter, chief.' and that's where the trouble lies. You know I've never kicked about work, no matter how much of it I've had. But this thing's beginning to get on my nerves. Cheney is planning some coup, I'm dead certain of that. What it's all about, though, I haven't the least idea. The plans are being laid in the German-American club, and there's no chance of getting in there. How about bribing one of the employees to leave? Can't be done. I've tried it half a dozen times. 
They're all Germans, and, as such, in the organization. However, I have a plan. Strictly speaking, it's outside the law, but that's why I wanted to talk things over with you. When Randall had finished outlining his plan, the chief sat for a moment in thought. Then, are you sure you can put it over? he inquired. Of course I can. It's done every other day, anyhow, by the cops themselves. Why shouldn't we take a leaf out of their book? I know, but there's always the possibility of a diplomatic protest. Not in this case, Chief. The man's only a waiter, and, besides, before the embassy has a chance to hear about it, I'll have found out what I want to know. Then, if they want to raise a row, let em. The upshot of the matter was that, about a week later, Franz Heilmann, a waiter employed at the German-American Club in New York, was arrested one night and hailed into night court on a charge of carrying concealed weapons, a serious offense under the Sullivan Act. In vain he protested that he had never carried a pistol in his life. Patrolman Flaherty, who had made the arrest, produced the weapon which he claimed to have found in Heilman's possession, and the prisoner was held for trial. Bright and early the next morning, Randall, disguised by a mustache which he had trained for just such an occasion, and bearing a carefully falsified letter from a German brewer in Milwaukee, presented himself at the employee's entrance of the German-American club and asked for the steward. To that individual he told his story, how he had tried to get back to the fatherland and had failed, how he had been out of work for nearly a month, and how he would like to secure employment of some kind at the club where he would at least be among friends. After a thorough examination of the credentials of the supposed German, who had explained his accent by the statement that he had been brought to the United States when very young and had been raised in Wisconsin, the steward informed him that there was a temporary vacancy in the club staff which he could fill until Heilman returned. The duties, the steward added, are very light, and the pay, while not large, will enable you to lay by a little something toward your return trip to Germany. Knowing that his time was limited, Randall determined to let nothing stand in the way of his hearing all that went on in the room where Cheney and his associates held their conferences. It was the work of only a few moments to bore holes in the door which connected this room with an unused coat closet, plugging up the holes with corks stained to simulate the wood itself, and the instant the conference was on, the new waiter disappeared. An hour later, he slipped out of the side entrance to the club, and the steward is probably wondering to this day what became of him. Had he been able to listen in on the private wire which connected the New York office of the Secret Service with headquarters at Washington, he would have had the key to the mystery. Chief, reported Randall, I've got the whole thing. There's a plot on foot to raise 150,000 German reservists, men already in this country, 
mobilizing them in four divisions, with six sections. The first two divisions are to assemble at Silver Creek, Michigan, the first one seizing the Welland Canal, and the second capturing Windmill Point, Ontario. The third is to meet at Wilson, New York, and will march on Port Hope. The fourth will go from Watertown, New York, to Kingston, Ontario, while the fifth will assemble somewhere near Detroit and proceed toward Windsor. The sixth will stage an attack on Ottawa, operating from Cornwall. They've got their plans all laid for the coup, and Cheney reported today that he intends to purchase some 85 boats to carry the invading force into the Dominion. The only thing that's delaying the game is the question of provisions for the army. Cheney's holding out for another advance. From what I gathered, he's already received a lot, and claims that he will be powerless until he gets it. I didn't stay to listen to the argument, for I figured that I'd better leave while the leaving was good. The reply that came back from Washington was rather startling to the operative, who expected only commendation and the statement that his task was completed. "'What evidence have you that this invasion is planned?' "'None besides what I heard through holes which I bored in one of the doors of the German-American club this morning.' "'That won't stand in court. We don't dare to arrest this man Cheney on that. You've got to get something on him.' "'Plant it?' "'No.' Get it straight, and we can't wait for this expedition to start, either. That would be taking too much of a chance. It's up to you to do a little speedy work in the research line. Dig back into the Count's past and find something on which we can hold him, for he's very evidently the brains of the organization, in spite of the fact that he probably is working only for what he can get of that fund that the Germans have raised. I understand that it's sixteen million dollars, and that's enough to tempt better men than Cheney. Now, go to it, and remember, you've got to work fast. Disappointed, chagrined by the air of finality with which the receiver at the Washington end of the line was hung up, Randall wandered out of the New York office with a scowl on his face and deep lines of thought between his eyes. If he hadn't been raised in the school which holds that a man's only irretrievable mistake is to quit under fire, he'd have thrown up his job right there and let someone else tackle the work of landing the count. But he had to admit that the chief was right, and, besides, there was every reason to suppose that grave issues hung in the balance. The invasion of Canada meant the overthrow of American neutrality the failure of the plans which the President and the State Department had so carefully laid. Cheney was the crux of the whole situation. Once held on a charge that could be proved in court, the plot would fall through for want of a capable leader, for the operative had learned enough during his hour in the cloakroom to know that the Count was the mainspring of the whole movement despite the fact that he undoubtedly expected to reap a rich financial harvest for himself. 
Selecting a seat on the top of a Fifth Avenue bus, Randall resigned himself to a consideration of the problem. The whole thing, he figured, simmers down to Cheney himself. In its ramifications, of course, it's a question of peace or war, but in reality it's a matter of landing a crook by legitimate means. I can't plan a gun on him like they did on Heilman, and there's mighty little chance of connecting him with a Branchfield case or the Van Heusen emeralds at this late date. His conduct around town has certainly been blameless enough. Not even any women to speak of. Wait a minute, though. There were two. The blonde from the Knickerbocker and that red-haired dame. He's still chasing around with the blonde, but what's become of Miss Redhead? This train of thought had possibilities. If the girl had been cast aside, it was probable that she would have no objection to telling what she knew, particularly as the color of her hair hinted at the possession of what the owner would call temperament, while the rest of the world forgets to add the last syllable. It didn't take long to locate the owner of the fiery tresses. A quick round-up of the headwaiters at the cafés which Cheney frequented, a taxi trip to Washington Square, and another to the section above Columbus Circle, and Randall found that the red-haired beauty was known as Olga Brainerd, an artist's model, whose face had appeared upon the cover of practically every popular publication in the country. She had been out of town for the past two months, he learned, but had just returned, and had taken an apartment in a section of the city which indicated the possession of considerable capital. "'Miss Brainerd,' said Randall, when he was face to face with the Titian beauty in the drawing-room of her suite. "'I came with a message from your friend, Carl Cheney.' Here he paused and watched her expression very closely. As he had hoped, the girl was unable to master her feelings. Rage and hate wrote themselves large across her face, and her voice fairly snapped as she started to reply. Randall, however, interrupted her with a smile and the statement, "'That's enough. I'm going to lay my cards face up on the table. I am a Secret Service operative seeking information about Cheney. Here is my badge, merely to prove that I'm telling the truth. We have reason to believe that the Count, as he is called, is mixed up with a pro-German plot which, if successful, would imperil the peace of the country. Can you tell us anything about him? Can I? echoed the girl. The beast! He promised to marry me more than two months ago, and then got infatuated with some blonde chit of a chorus girl. Just because I lost my head and showed him a letter I had received, a letter warning me against him, he flew into a rage and threatened... Well, never mind what he did say. The upshot of the affair was that he sent me out of town and gave me enough money to last me some time. But he'll pay for his insults. Have you the letter you received? 
asked Randall casually, as if it meant little to him whether the girl produced it or not. Yes, I kept it. Wait a moment and I'll get it for you. A few seconds later she was back with a note, written in a feminine hand, a note which read, If you are wise, you will ask the man who calls himself Carl Cheney what he knows of Paul Weiss, of George Winters, and Oscar Stanley. You might also inquire what has become of Florence and Rose. Signed, Amelia. Randall looked up with a puzzled expression. "'What's all this about?' he inquired. "'Sounds like Greek to me.' "'To me, too,' agreed the girl. "'But it was enough to make Carl purple with rage, "'and, what's more, to separate him from several thousand dollars.' "'Weiss, Winters, and Stanley,' mused Guy. "'Those might easily be Cheney's former aliases. "'Florence, Rose, and Amelia?' I wonder. Come on, girl, we're going to take a ride down to City Hall. I've got a hunch. Late that afternoon, when Carl Cheney arrived at his hotel, he was surprised to find a young man awaiting him in his apartment, a man who appeared to be perfectly at ease, and who slipped over and locked the door once the Count was safely within the room. "'What does this mean?' demanded Cheney. "'By what right?' "'It means,' snapped Randall, "'that the game's up.' Then, raising his voice, he called, "'Mrs. Weiss?' And a tall woman parted the curtains at the other end of the room. "'Mrs. Winters?' And another woman entered. "'Mrs. Stanley?' And a third came in. With his fingers still caressing the butt of the automatic which nestled in his coat pocket, Randall continued, "'Cheney, or whatever your real name is, there won't be any invasion of Canada. We know all about your plans. In fact, the arsenal on West Houston Street is in possession of the police at this moment. It was a good idea, and undoubtedly you would have cleaned up on it were it not for the fact that I am under the far from painful necessity of arresting you on a charge of bigamy, or would you call it trigamy? The records at City Hall gave you away, after one of these ladies had been kind enough to provide us with a clue to the three aliases under which you conducted your matrimonial operations. Come on, Count, the Germans may need you worse than we do, but we happen to have you. End of chapter 15